to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. This is truly the first Sunday I've preached with strobe lighting going on up here, so we'll see how that goes throughout the, uh, the service. This could have been a good Sunday to preach on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. This would have been, anyway, feeling funny today. Exodus chapter 19. Verses 1 through 8. This will be our final message on this portion of Exodus chapter 19. But I do want to look at these eight verses one more time. Uh, If you remember, uh, last time we were here, we saw a glorious truth. A glorious truth. Uh, The fact that God's people are His treasured possession. Dear Christian in this room, are you not glad that you belong to God? That you are His and He is yours? Aren't you glad to know that God cherishes you? He treasures you. He prizes you. He he values you. That you are but a frail human sinner. You are dear to the heart of God. Well, this morning, we want to note two more major truths connected to these first eight verses. Yes, we are firstly, as God's people, His treasured possession. But second, we are a kingdom of priests. And thirdly, we are a holy nation. So these are the three truths I'm driving home. We we already saw the first, that we as God's people are His treasured possession, But now this morning, I want us to see that God's people are a kingdom of priests and that God's people are a holy nation. And there's a lot of glory here, but before we dig in, let's read. Let's read our text. So beginning in verse 1, Exodus 19, it is the very word of God. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt... On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness, and there Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians." And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So let me quickly bring us up to speed. Uh, We have seen that what God is doing in this passage is revealing to this ancient people, this nation of Israel, his intention to unite himself in a covenant relationship with them. Uh, This covenant relationship between God and Old Testament Israel is often called the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. 
But of course, here in Exodus 19, there was nothing old about it. Here in Exodus 19, this covenant was brand new to these Israelites. We call it the old covenant because we're looking back on it. And because we know that this covenant no longer exists. The covenant made here at Mount Sinai has now been replaced by what we call the new covenant. The covenant relationship that we have with God if we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the old covenant, which is Old Testament, new covenant in these New Testament days. And we've already seen a lot of great similarities between God's old covenant with Israel and his new covenant with his people of every generation. In both covenants, God saved his people by grace and brought them to himself, right? He just told Israel, I bore you up on eagle's wings. I delivered you from bondage to the Egyptians. In both covenants, God declared the terms of the covenant relationship. In both covenants, God promised that he would bless the obedience of his people. And both covenants were established entirely on principles of grace and yet place upon God's people the requirement that they live as a faithful, redeemed people. So there's a lot of ways in which the old covenant and the new covenant are very similar. But we've also seen a crucial difference between the old and the new covenant. National Israel had God's law given to them on tablets of stone. But in these new covenant days, the Holy Spirit comes and writes the law of God on his people's hearts. Israel did not have the will to obey God. But in the new covenant, God comes to a sinner and he gives that sinner a will, a desire, a delight in actually obeying him. God comes by His Spirit and He gives us saving faith and true God-given saving faith leads to obedience, heartfelt obedience. Most of ancient Israel in the Old Covenant never had that. They never had that God-given heartfelt faith that led to obedience. And then there was this vital difference. In the Old Covenant, it was possible for Israel to so rebel against their gracious God that they would apostatize and the covenant relationship would end. God said here in the verses we just read, if you do this, if you are obedient, if you keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. You will be a kingdom of priests. You will be a holy nation. If, implication, if you don't keep my covenant, If you don't stay faithful to my word, then you will lose that status. And despite God's long endurance, Israel continued to rebel for centuries. Read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. Israel chasing after other gods. Israel ignoring and even killing the prophets that God sent to them. And even after the severe discipline of the exile, Israel fell quickly again into pagan sin. When God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world, Israel received Him and chewed Him up and spit Him out. They killed the Son of God. And that was the last straw and God's old covenant with Israel came to an end. In the new covenant, that will never happen. 
In the new covenant, God's people will never apostatize. As promised through prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, God, through His Holy Spirit, comes to His people and gives them a holy fear of Him, an awe of God, a reverence for God that keeps them trusting Him and obeying Him. By the Spirit, God keeps His people saved. By the Spirit, God sustains the faith of His people. The Old Covenant was a temporary covenant because Israel did not remain God's people forever. But the New Covenant is everlasting. For all who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ are kept by the Spirit and enjoy a relationship with God that will never end. And so in 1 Peter 2... Peter, writing to Christians, echoes the language of the Old Covenant, but he says, no, now it's true of you New Covenant people. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, you Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So in the old covenant with ancient Israel, it was, if you keep my covenant, you are these things. In the new covenant, it is, Christians, you are these things. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. And I simply want to ask you, dear Christian, do you know your identity? Do you know who you are? Our culture thinks that you decide for yourself your identity. That you have to go on a journey of self-discovery to find out from within yourself who you are. But dear friend, let me tell you the truth. You are who God says you are. Your identity is who God says you are. And if you're a Christian, God says you are a citizen of a kingdom of priests and that you are part of a holy nation. So those are the two truths I want to unpack for us this morning. Uh, I have several main points and subpoints, so we're going to move very, very quickly. But just because we're moving quickly, don't fail to savor this. These are glorious realities. I am talking, dear Christian, about who you are. So worship God as you hear these truths being taught this morning. So truth number one. See that God's people are a kingdom and a nation. And I've put those two together because they're very similar. A kingdom and a a nation. Uh, We see this here in Exodus, and it's pretty obvious. God is establishing this family of people as a nation. And from Mount Sinai onward, we will see Israel no longer as the small family that we read about in Genesis and no longer as just 12 tribes coming out of Egypt, here at Mount Sinai, Israel is established as a kingdom and as a nation. In the New Covenant, the God's people are called out of all kinds of nations, and though God's people live all over the globe, and though they're scattered throughout the political entities of this world, the church of Jesus Christ is called a kingdom and a nation. And when Jesus comes on the last day with the saints who have already gone before and they return to gather all his people to himself, all believers will be ushered into the new heavens and the new earth and we will dwell in the ultimate fruition of the kingdom of God. 
All earthly kingdoms and all earthly nations will disappear. Every political entity on this world today is going to disappear. When you look at your globe and you look at all the different nations, all the different governments of the world, one day they are all going to be gone. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ will endure forever. It is the everlasting kingdom. Now the fact that God's people are a kingdom and a nation implies at least three things. So here we go. Number one, this implies that there is a structure and a orderliness to God's people. A structure and a orderliness to God's people. The church of Jesus Christ is not anarchy. The church of Jesus Christ is a kingdom and a nation, and that means structure. Uh, In ancient Israel, Israel gets established as a nation, and each tribe has its elders, and the elders form a council, who we see even here in Exodus 19 are listening to Moses and later to Aaron. They respond back to Moses and Aaron on behalf of the people. There's a representative-type government actually depicted here in ancient Israel. We've already seen Moses follow his father-in-law Jethro's advice establishing worthy men throughout each tribe to help hear cases and solve disagreements. And we're about to see in Exodus that God establishes a priesthood for his people to manage the religious life of the nation. There is structure, there is order to this kingdom. We see this orderliness come out even more as God will give instructions about the order in which each tribe should leave the camp where each tribe should pitch its tents around the tabernacle. We will see God designate the promised land, the land of Canaan, and He will apportion it out, and He will give to each tribe a specific amount of land for them to live on. We will see God establish a capital for this nation. He's going to give Israel a seat of power. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that our God is a God of decency and order, And when God saves a people for himself, he organizes them. He organizes them. He makes them into a kingdom. So also in our new covenant days, God's people are organized into local churches. The Bible does not teach a denominational hierarchy, but it does teach that God has appointed pastors to oversee the people of God and local churches spread throughout the world. He's appointed deacons to assist pastors and to help in the practical needs of God's people. We see in Ephesians that Jesus has appointed other offices in his church, the the office of evangelist, which we know as missionary. Indeed, Jesus, by the Spirit, raises up leaders to care for his people. And so even today, there is an order to the kingdom of God on this earth. And the people who most need to hear that are the people that would not be here this morning. It's those Christians who think they don't need the local church. It's those Christians who think, well, I can be a Lone Ranger Christian off on my own, and they don't realize that they were saved to be part of an organized people. They were saved to be part of the the orderliness of a kingdom that Christ is building. Well, second, the fact that God's people are a kingdom and a nation implies that there is a king over God's people. (laughs) Uh, If you're going to have a kingdom, there must be a king. If you're going to have a nation, there must be uh, someone who is the head of the government. In Exodus, Israel's first king is God himself. In fact, God tells Israel here at the beginning of their national history not to follow the pattern of the pagan nations around them. He tells them not to establish a human king. He said, I will be your king. 
I will be your lawgiver. I will establish the laws of this nation. Later, you probably know what happens. The people ignore God as their king. Uh, They live in outright disobedience. Judges says that there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And finally, people started crying out, give us God a king like the other nations have. We want a human king. It was kind of a, a spurning of God. They said, we want a human king for our king. And so God warned them, if I give you a human king, there's going to be a lot of negatives that go with that. But he allows them to have a human king. And many of those human kings led Israel into disobedience. Many of those human kings were a curse on the people of Israel. There was David, the great king, the the choicest king, the best ruler that Israel ever knew. Today, in the new covenant, we have David's greater son. Our king is the best king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of kings, the king over all kings. And we could talk all morning long about the joy of being led by a king who is as good as Jesus Christ. We as Americans love to complain about our political leaders. We as Americans know what it's like to have leaders who are faulty and let us down and don't ever seem to do the right thing in our eyes. Not so with Jesus Christ. He is the very model of what the very best king can be. So God has given us in the kingdom of God the best king, his son Jesus. And then third, the fact that God's people are a kingdom and a nation implies that there is a land for God's people. You can't have a kingdom without a place for that kingdom to exist. Yes, there's the people. Yes, there's the king. But where are they going to dwell together? Where are they going to be stationed? Every kingdom has to have a people, a king, and a land. In Exodus, it's a promised land, meaning you're not there yet, Israel. Mount Sinai is not your promised land. This is not the home for your kingdom. Canaan is the land where your kingdom will exist. And we know that it's still 40 years away for these men, women, boys, and girls here at Mount Sinai. Also in the New Covenant, we are a nation with a land, but we're not yet in that land, not fully. Uh, Peter tells us that one day this world as we know it will be baptized with fire. One day this world as we know it will be made new. We sang in Romans 8 a while ago about the groaning of creation for this day. Just as Noah's flood cleansed the earth and made it new again, so in an even more radical and complete way, on the day of judgment, this earth is going to be refined in fire, made new. Heaven itself will come to this earth, and this world that we live on will become the new heavens and the new earth and that is our promised land that is the kingdom where we will dwell with Christ forever and ever we're still in the wilderness we're not there yet but it's coming are you ready for that day are you eager for that day we will sing Baptist, we will dance probably, right? In the promised land when that day comes. All right, second truth, second truth. We see in these two descriptions that God's people are priests. God's people are priests. Did you know that you're a priest, dear Christian? 
Did you know that you are a priest of God? We see it here in Exodus. We see it in in Peter talking to us in 1 Peter 2. What does it mean that you and I as Christians are priests? Four ways that we're priests. I'll go through these quickly, but savor them. Number one, God's people can draw near to him. God's people can draw near to him. This was the great privilege of priests. They had access to God in a way that other people did not have access. While most people had to stay outside the inner courts of the temple, the priests were able to come into the holy place, and once a year, the high priest went into the most holy place. Similarly, while the rest of the nations were caught up in the worship of demons and were walking in darkness, God allowed Israel, through their priests, to have real access to him. This was a priestly nation because through the priesthood, the whole nation of Israel was going to have a true relationship with God and a means of access to God. But of course, for ancient Israel, that communion with God was still very limited. They could commune with God, but only through the mediation of human priests And though God was with Israel, he was also hidden from them behind a curtain in the most holy place, shut up in a room where nobody could go except for one man one time a year. But in the new covenant, our access to God is wide open. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two. Ephesians 3.12 says that in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. We do not have to approach God as, uh, as a trembling sinner the way Dorothy and her friends approached the Wizard of Oz. They were so afraid. And then when the curtain was, was torn back, it turned out that the wizard was just an, an old man, a, a silly old man. But the God who dwelt behind the curtain in the temple was no man. The God behind the the veil in the temple was and is divine spirit. A personal, powerful God, omniscient, omnipresent, all wise, all good. Just a consuming fire. And yet through Christ, we can approach Him with confidence. We can approach Him with boldness. We can approach Him as our Father. The disciples said to Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father. Who is in heaven? No longer do we need human priests. The practice of the Roman Catholic Church of using human priests to mediate between people and God stands in stark contradiction to the explicit teaching of the books of the New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the only human priest we need. He is the God-man. He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the great high priest to whom all others pointed. And when we have faith in Jesus and we are his and he is ours, through him we have access to God. And we can approach God with every concern, every thanksgiving, every praise, every need, every petition. And we can do so knowing that he cares and that he listens and that he is faithful to his people. Second, as priests, God's people can worship him. God's people can worship him. In Israel, it was only the priests who actually presented the blood of the sacrifices to God. 
In Israel, if you wanted to sing in the temple choir, you had to be a Levitical priest, you had to be male, you had to be of a certain age, and you had to be of that particular family within the Levitical tribe consecrated for that task. Didn't matter how much you loved music, how good you could sing. If you didn't meet all of those qualifications, you did not get to sing in the temple choir. All Israel could come and worship at the temple, but they had to worship through the priests. And it was the priest who actually brought the worship to God. This was still better than all the other nations. All the other nations, they didn't even know God. Those people didn't get to worship the true God at all. But in the new covenant, we get to bring worship to God ourselves through our Lord Jesus Christ. We bring sacrifices. I hope you brought sacrifices this morning. And not a bull, because I don't want that in here. Okay, But I hope you brought sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of thanksgiving, sacrifices of, of lives ready to be consecrated to God and to live in obedience to Him. And praise God in the new covenant, you don't have to be born of a certain family, you don't have to be male, you don't have to be of a certain age, you don't have to be from the right family to be a part of God's choir. We, we are God's choir. We together, the whole family of God get to participate in the worship of God. We, we sing to an audience of one. It's a privilege to worship God. Number three. As priests, God's people can serve Him. God's people can serve Him. Uh, in Israel, it was the priests who were called into the special service of God. And different priests had different roles and they, they got to serve God in different unique ways. Uh, most Israelites did not get to be priests in the way that the tribe of Levi did. But this was a priestly nation because this was God's nation. And the whole nation was called to serve her God. And therefore, whatever role you had as an Israelite, whether you were a farmer or a silk maker, your role was to serve the welfare of the nation for the glory of of God. God's name was on the nation of Israel. And so in this nation, every calling mattered. Well, in a far higher way, this is true for us in the new covenant. No longer is a select group of people called priests. No, every believer is called a priest. Martin Luther said that this word priest should be as common as the word Christian. Because everywhere you see a Christian, you see a priest. Art Lindsley says, when Luther referred to the priesthood of all believers, he was maintaining that the plowboy and the milkmaid could do priestly work. In fact, their plowing and their milking was priestly work. There was no hierarchy where the priesthood was a vocation, a calling, and milking the cow was not. No, both were tasks that God had called his followers to do, each according to their gifts, end quote. Mount Hermon, every Christian is a priest, even when we have different roles and different callings. Some of us are called to be pastors, and being a pastor is a wonderful calling. I love my job. I think it's a wonderful calling. It is not to be set above other callings. It is not to be seen as a higher calling than others. Every calling matters among God's people. He is building His kingdom. He is showing His glory through each of us in diverse ways. God has given you certain callings. 
And as his servant, you are to find your joy in fulfilling the calling he has given you for the glory of his name. And we don't create a hierarchy. We don't have the clergy and then the lay people. No, no, no. Not in, among Protestant churches. We believe that every Christian is a priest doing work for the glory of God, no matter what your particular callings may be. And then finally, number four, because we are priests, God's people can represent him. We can represent him. In the Old Testament, priests could draw near to God. They could worship God. They could serve God on behalf of the people, but they also represented God to the people. The priests were God's ambassadors. They spoke for God to the people. They, they helped the people to know true religion. In the same way, the whole nation of Israel was a priestly nation. And that that nation was God's ambassador to the rest of the world, to the other pagan nations living in darkness, ignorant of true religion. In the new covenant, every Christian is an ambassador for God. At our baptism, we take the name of God and we take the name of Christ upon us. And we are called Christians. And we wear the name of Jesus in everything we say and everything we do. We live in this world for His honor. Mount Hermon, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You are an ambassador for God. So many of these truths could be a whole sermon. I'm trying to pack them all in. So here we go. Very quickly, the last truth, the third truth that we see here is that God's people are holy. God's people are holy. Israel was to be a holy nation. Peter says that Christians are a holy nation. The word holy literally means distinct, set apart, a cut above. It means to be different and distinct. God's people are different from all the other people of the world. You're different. Do you know that? You're different. And that's a good thing. How are we different? How are we a holy nation? Well, number one, God's people are different from all others in their relationship to him. In their relationship to him. All humanity stands as enemies of God. We don't need to take this lightly, church. Um, Brad and I were talking last Sunday night about how we need to recover a brokenness about the lost around us. Let this fall on you afresh. I know you know it. You live among a people stand because of their sin as enemies of God all peoples of this world stand under the condemnation of God because of their rebellion we live in a world of hell bound people but there is an exception there is one group of people who are not enemies of God, but indeed they've been called friends of God. There, there's one group of people who do not stand under God's condemnation. They stand under His mercy and His love. The vast majority of people in the world have a relationship with God marked by their sin and His wrath. It's a, it's a relationship of hostility and enmity. But there is a, a people a different people, a distinct people who have a relationship with God marked by forgiveness and care and love. 
every one of us who are Christians used to be like the rest of the world. We used to be part of the the wicked rebellion against God. But now God has saved us. And He has brought us into relationship with Him. And He is now our Father and our Shepherd and the lover of our souls. As you live your life in this world, remember that those around you do not have what you have. Have compassion on the lost around you. Be quick to show love to them. They do not have God as their father. They do not have God as their dearest friend. You do. You have a peace that is beyond their their understanding. You have a joy that they've never tasted. How passionate we should be to bring others into the the sweet communion with God that we have found through, through Jesus. Second implication. We are holy because God's people are different from all others in the purpose that drives them. The purpose that drives them. Other people live for their own glory. We used to. They either live to feed their appetites or they live to please their ego or they live for the benefit of some cause that has won their heart. But for God's people, the overarching purpose that drives them in everything is the glory of God. His name, His fame are the center of their lives. For the people of God, they live to worship Him. They live to honor Him. Now, they may do very ordinary things. They may simply be doing things like schoolwork, or working a job, or raising a family. But they do these things for a very different reason than their neighbors. The Christian student works hard on her math, not simply to learn the subject, but to please her God in how she works. And she seeks through her education to be well equipped to serve God in this world. The Christian workman goes to his job each day not mainly for a paycheck, but that Jesus might be pleased with his work. And the Christian workman longs to be an example to those around him of what it means to do a job well for the glory of Christ. The Christian mother is not just nurturing her kids so that they might be healthy and successful in this life. The Christian mother is seeking to raise lovers of God, witnesses for God, world changers for God. Her her mothering is a missional mothering. Israel was not called to live like the other nations. Israel was to live for the glory and the honor of the God who dwelt in her midst. And we as Christians are called to live for the glory and the honor of the God who has redeemed us and made us His own. Third implication, God's people are different from all others in their moral character. In their moral character. Isn't it interesting that at the heart of this covenant that God establishes with Israel, there's going to be a list of moral commandments. Now they've been brought here by grace. They've been delivered from Egypt by grace. And God is going to be extremely gracious with Israel for many more centuries. But at the heart of the covenant is this requirement that they live moral lives. In fact, basically what God means when He says, keep my covenant, is trust me enough to do what I say. Israel was to be different from the other pagan nations Not just because of what God had done for her, but because she now lived in her new identity as the people of God and lived accordingly. And this difference would show itself in the moral lives of the people. 
Israel was to have a higher moral code than the Assyrians. They were not to sacrifice their children to gods like the Babylonians. They were not to be like the Hittites. They were not to treat their women the way that the the Amorites did. Those nations worshipped gods who themselves lied. In in the midst of the ancient Canaanite, Canaanite gods, those gods were wicked. They stole and they murdered and they schemed and they deceived. But Israel's God was a holy God. And he said, Israel, now you be holy as I am holy. You're my ambassador. You be holy as I am. The true God is a moral God and he calls his people to imitate him. This hasn't changed in the new covenant. Mount Hermon, are you different from others around you in the workplace or in your neighborhood or even in your own family because of your moral code? Is there an allegiance to Jesus that makes you stand out in the decisions you make? Do you find that your integrity causes your conscience to be pricked when other people are rushing headlong into immorality and they seem to have no remorse? Do you find yourself different in this way? Your friends start talking about this movie and they're going to go see that movie and they're all excited about that movie and you're thinking, I can't go to that movie. I just, I can't. My conscience will lick me. Are you different in that way? Are you, are you distinct? Are you, are you different? 1 John 2 verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Well, fourth and finally, God's people are different from all others in their final end. In their final end. Had Israel remained in covenant relationship to God, keeping covenant with Him, they would have been eternally blessed. In the new covenant, there is no fear that God's people will lose their covenant as Israel did. Our end as Christians is guaranteed. All other people remain in their sins. All other people are blind and hardened and they refuse to acknowledge and serve the God that created them. And through tears we say that the end of the people around us who are lost is fire. It's torment. It's wrath. Their end, Jesus said, is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Justin didn't say that. Justin doesn't want to say that. But Jesus said it, and so we must believe it. The end for lost people is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and it should grieve us as we think about billions in this world headed to that terrible end. But it is a just end. There's no unrighteousness with God. For God's people, however, we have a very different future ahead of us. The sufferings of this life will not even compare with the glory to be revealed to us. New heavens, new earth, life eternally in the gracious presence of God. This is our future. And it has been given to us by the mercy of God. We don't deserve it, but dear Christian, you have a home in heaven. And that's where you're headed. So Mount Hermon, let us rejoice that we are a kingdom of priests. And that we are a holy nation. With all that those words entail. And if you're here this morning. You are not a part of this people of God. Let me just plead with you. Enter through the open door of Jesus Christ. Believe on Him. Take Him as your Lord and Savior. Follow Him. Humble yourself. Call out on Him to save you. And He will. If you'll simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And follow Him. You will be made 
a citizen of the kingdom of priests, a part of the holy nation called the Church of Christ. Mount Hermon, let us know our identity and let us live in the joy of who we are. Amen? Amen. You stuck it out through the heat. Well done. Let's pray.